the green light. That's what we were missing. <laughs> that means I can go. <laughs> well, let me just say that my wife Jane and I have been so encouraged over the last two days. The love of your fellowship, the praise of your worship, and the hope of your prayers, you have really meant a lot to us. And we're going to be praying for you, and we ask that you pray for our ministry as well. Well, this morning we want to look at the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. As I've shared with you the last few days, the greatest attack on the Christian faith today is an attack on the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. So that's why we're looking at this important passage this morning. The gospel is being compromised to draw a larger following for unity with the Roman Catholic religion. And many are forgetting what the Reformation was all about. In fact, some are even calling us to reverse the Reformation. So what should our role as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ be? Well, open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, and we will see how Paul handled those who were distorting the gospel 2,000 years ago. Galatians chapter 1, we'll look at verses 6 through 9. Paul writes this epistle with an urgent response to a report from the Galatian churches that were being bewitched by professing Christians who were distorting the gospel. By the way, this is Paul's only epistle that he does not begin with a commendation. And that is because the Galatians had drifted away from Christ and his gospel. Paul gets right to the point with his vigorous defense of the gospel of grace and also his defense of justification by faith alone. So read along with me, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul writes, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, as we have said before. So I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So let's examine this passage with three observations. The first observation, Paul's amazement at the Galatians deserting Christ in verse 6. The next observation, Paul's awareness of the Galatians' unwillingness to contend for the gospel. And thirdly, Paul's anathema on anyone who distorts the gospel in verses 8 and 9. Paul's driving a stake in the ground because the purity of the gospel is under attack. Remember, he spent his entire ministry proclaiming, defending, and contending for the gospel of grace. So Paul is direct and confrontational because so much is at stake here. His divine curse on those who distort the gospel is absolutely necessary because the gospel is the only message of salvation. So in verse 6, we see Paul's amazement at the Galatians deserting Christ. He writes, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. We see Paul is amazed. 
The Greek word means to wonder, to marvel, to be struck with astonishment. And we find it most often used when people were amazed at the miracles of Christ. A good example is in Matthew 8.27. After Jesus commanded the storm to cease, the men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? So here Paul was astonished and in deep distress that the Galatians were deserting God, the one who called them by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The Greek word deserting here means to transfer your allegiance. So the Galatians were literally turning against God to follow false teachers. And the verb is in the present tense indicating that their, distortion, their defection was still in process. So if there were some unconverted false Christians within the Galatian church, they would have departed from the church to follow the Judaizers. If they had done this, they would have been like the apostates we read about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John writes, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us that they might show that they were never of us. So we're seeing the same thing happening today. In fact, we're seeing many Protestants leave the Protestant church to join the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of this is happening when a Protestant marries a Roman Catholic. In our 33 years of ministry, we've witnessed this so many times. In fact, four out of five times when a Protestant marries a Catholic, the Protestant converts to Catholicism. And how can this be? We are standing on the truth of the gospel. The Catholic Church is standing on a false and fatal gospel, but yet we're the first ones to compromise. So what does Paul say about the true believers in Galatia? He reprimands them for tolerating a false gospel that replaces grace, truth, and freedom with rules, rituals, and religion. They were not resisting the Judaizers, but instead were tolerating their false teaching. And Paul is not concerned that they would lose their salvation because, because once you're born again of the Spirit of God, you are securely in Christ forever. But what Paul is concerned about is that they were tolerating an attack on the gospel that saved them. So why only one gospel? Have you ever considered that? Well, God's gospel is the only way his perfect and unchanging attributes of holiness, righteousness, and justice can work in harmony with his love, mercy, and grace to redeem sinners from the punishment, the power, and the presence of sin. This amazing gospel could not have been devised by man but only in the infinite and profound wisdom of God. And this is why Paul said it was revealed to him by God and not by man. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul said, The gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. When we look at God's glorious attributes, they were all on display at Calvary's cross. His holiness and having eyes too pure to look at sin. 
his righteousness and demanding perfect justice, his justice in condemning and punishing sin, his love in sending his son to die for guilty sinners, his mercy in rescuing sinners from eternal punishment, and his grace in providing the gift of eternal life. All of God's attributes were beautifully displayed in perfect harmony at Calvary's cross. This is the only way God can be both the just and the justifier of the unjust. That's why this gospel was formed in the profound wisdom of God. This demonstration of God's holiness and righteousness without compromising his love, mercy, and justice is what distinguishes biblical Christianity from all the religions in the world. And too often as we witness to people, you've heard them respond, well, my God is a God of love and he would not send anyone to hell. My response is always the same. When Jesus Christ became sin for us, God did not spare his own son. What chance do you have that God would not punish you if you do not come to Christ with empty hands of faith? This is the gospel of God that must be guarded as the most valuable of all treasures. What hope does the next generation have if we do not protect the gospel of grace? The next observation is Paul's awareness of the Galatians' unwillingness to contend for the gospel. He wrote in Galatians 1.7, a different gospel which is really not another. Yet there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul declares dogmatically, a different gospel is not another gospel. God's gospel must remain pure Nothing can be added to it. Remember, the Judaizers were professing Christians. They believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he said, if you're a Gentile, you not only need to believe that, but you need to be circumcised. They were also disturbing the Galatians. The Greek word means to stir up or agitate. The same verb is used by Jesus speaking to the disciples in John 14.1. Jesus said, stop letting your hearts be troubled. You see, the disciples were agitated and confused and because the Lord Jesus said, I must go and die and then I will depart from you. The Galatians were accused of tolerating a false gospel and replacing grace, freedom with rules and rituals. They were not resisting the Judaizers, but instead were tolerating their false teaching. The Judaizers were exchanging the truth of God for the lies of the devil. They were distorting the gospel of grace by adding something to it. They were saying salvation could be obtained by what man can do instead of what Christ has done. They were insulting Christ by declaring that his perfect, finished, and all-sufficient work was not enough. They were requiring the Gentiles to become Jewish proselytes and to obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Their distortion was upsetting the Galatian churches. And obviously Satan is behind every false teacher. We see that in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 3 to 4. 
When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he said, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You put up with it. Rather than contending for the purity of the gospel, you put up with these false teachers. And don't miss this. Paul's reprimand, you bear this beautifully. Rather than defending the purity of the gospel, you tolerate a perversion of it. The Galatians were doing the same thing that the Corinthian church was doing. They were not contending for the true gospel. And as a result, they were being led astray from their pure devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul questioned them later in this letter in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He wrote, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So the application is so profound here. The church cannot tolerate a false gospel. Christians must guard against false doctrine and protect the gospel of God. What hope does the next generation have if we don't? The gospel of grace must be void of the works of the law. Throughout scripture, we see that law and grace can never, ever be mixed. Let me share with you some examples In Galatians 5.3, the law says do. We read every man who receives circumcision is under obligation to keep the whole law. But grace says done. In John 19.30, Jesus cried out, it is finished. Sin's eternal debt has been paid in full. The law reveals sin as we see in Romans 7.7. Paul said, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. But grace forgives sin, as we see in Ephesians 1.7. In him, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The law condemns, as we see in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one part is guilty of breaking the entire law. But grace justifies, as we see in Romans 3.24, Sinners are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The law causes death, as we see in Romans 3.23, or at Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But yet grace brings to life, as we see in Ephesians 2.5. God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The law brings bondage, as we see in Galatians 2.4. The false brethren sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage through the law. Well, grace brings freedom, as we read in Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. This is why Paul was so upset with the Galatians for not contending for the gospel of grace. Later in this epistle, he wrote, 
You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Galatians 5.4. So the third observation then is Paul's anathema on anyone who distorts the gospel. He wrote, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And Paul knows he will never preach a false gospel, but he's making a point. It doesn't matter who you are. Anyone who perverts the gospel is to be accursed. In verse 9, he repeats himself so that there will be no misunderstanding. Please note, Paul did not say, let's have unity with these Judaizers. After all, they're professing Christians just like we are. He brought down a divine curse on the Judaizers. And there's some other important observations for us to make. Also some important applications. How about you and I? Can we discern the true gospel from a false gospel? Can we distinguish between the genuine and the counterfeit? Are we tolerant of false gospels circulating within the professing church? Are we warning those who have been deceived by a false and fatal gospel? In verses 8 and 9, the word accursed is the Greek word anathema. It means to be turned over to God for destruction. This is as harsh as God's word ever gets, pronouncing a damning curse on anyone who distorts or alters the gospel. Paul holds nothing back here. If you add anything to the gospel or take anything away from the gospel, you are to be turned over to God for destruction. To teach any other way of salvation other than through the perfect, finished, all-sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, you are to be damned. There's only one other warning in the New Testament that speaks of anathema, and that's in 1 Corinthians 16.22. Paul writes, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. So Paul is declaring that love for the true God and the purity of his gospel are of utmost importance. So what does it mean to be accursed? Well, the Lord Jesus describes it in Matthew 25.41. He says, Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So to be cursed is to be put away from the presence of Christ and thrown into the eternal fire prepared for the devil. So what can we take away from Paul's strong defense of the gospel here? We must be committed as Paul. He wrote in Galatians 2.5, but we did not yield in subjection to them, the false brethren, for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. We can only wonder why more Christian pastors, more Christian leaders today are not denouncing those who distort the gospel. Is it because they want to be man-pleasers? Well, Paul addressed that in this epistle as well. Look at verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? 
If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Please don't miss this. What Paul is saying is, if we tolerate any false gospel, we are not pleasing our Lord. Jane and I were visiting a church in the Dallas area, and we looked in the bulletin and we saw that there was a plan of salvation. It was two steps. It was admit you are a sinner. And the second step, believe Jesus died for you. Well, the next week, I, this was just haunting me. I, I said, I can't let this go. And so I called the pastor. He was a graduate of the same seminary I went to. And I said, did you happen to know that you presented a false gospel to your congregation? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you left out the resurrection. Paul said, without the resurrection, our faith is futile. And so he had already printed 3,000 bulletins for the next week. He had them all destroyed. Then he put the resurrection in. But why did I do that? I mean, I was convicted to do it, but I didn't want the 3,000 people there believing a false and fatal gospel. We must believe in the resurrection. That's part of the gospel, a very important part. In fact, the resurrection is the miracle of God that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. So we, if, if we are seeking the favor of men who compromise the gospel, then we are not pleasing God. So the question for all of us is, do we know the gospel well enough to spot a counterfeit? And if we spot a counterfeit, what are we going to do? Let's take a close look at the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ. We see it defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. It's a very simple gospel. It's about one person, the eternal God incarnate, his virgin birth and his perfect life. It's about one person and two events, the atoning death of Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection from the dead. Listen to how Paul describes it. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's eternal son, left the glories of heaven to be conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin to take on human flesh. He lived in perfect obedience to God's law. Then he was crucified as the perfect savior to satisfy divine justice for sinners. He bore man's sin. He suffered God's wrath. He died in man's place and was raised on the third day to show that divine justice was satisfied. He paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. What a glorious Savior we have in Christ Jesus. So let's look at some distortions of the gospel. It's distorted two ways. By adding requirements for salvation, such as what we see here requiring circumcision other religions today are requiring baptism, good works, legalism, human merit, sacraments, or anything else. But the gospel is also distorted by removing essentials. So are you and I as outraged as Paul that people are being deceived by these distorted gospels? 
We cannot be passive or indifferent towards any distortion of the gospel. We must be bold and courageous in our stand for the true gospel. We are in a spiritual battle for the souls of men and ultimately is a battle between the truth of God's word and the lies of the devil. This is the one battle, the one fight, the one war that really matters because there is so much at stake. There are only two things in this life that will last forever, and that's the souls of men and the word of God. Everything else will perish. We all need to devote our lives, the remaining lives that we have, to what lasts throughout all eternity. Some of the gospel essentials that are often removed from the gospel would include the resurrection as we have just seen. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. By the way, all these essentials, these three essentials that are often removed all begin with an R. Repentance. God commands all people everywhere to repent. The first command he gave when he began his earthly ministry was repent and believe the gospel. And the last R that is often removed is the righteousness of God. It's no wonder that when we ask people how they hope to get to heaven, their response most often is, I hope I'm good enough. But you see, if we're declaring the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel, as we see in Romans 1.17, then we can tell people that God's righteousness requires perfect righteousness for entrance into heaven. And the only hope you have is to receive the gift of Christ's righteousness by repenting and believing his gospel. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years, Paul wrote, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Romans 10.3 To remove the righteousness of God from the gospel is to remove man's only passport into heaven. And that's because through the abundance of grace comes the gift of God's righteousness. Romans 5.17 Did you know that the greatest distortion of the gospel today is put forth by the Roman Catholic Church? Look at the gospel that the modern-day Judaizers proclaim to their people. They say salvation is faith plus baptism. The numbers are paragraph numbers of the catechism of the church. You also need the sacraments. They are necessary for salvation. You must do good works in order to be justified. You must participate in the ongoing sacrifice of the mass for the forgiveness of your sins. You must do penance before your sins can be forgiven. And you must receive indulgences to remit temporal punishment for sin. You must also keep the law. It's just like the Judaizers. They were placing the Gentiles under the law. It's just truly sad to see. And I know many of us came out of this false system. I was um, invited up to do a two-day conference in Wisconsin. And there was a woman in the church that had been there three years and was asking the church to pray for her Roman Catholic husband 
She kept inviting him to church, but he never would come. But then she found out a former Catholic was coming to give the weekend messages. And so she pleaded with him, please just come this one time. And so that Saturday night, I gave a message entitled, Where Will You Spend Eternity? It was all about the gospel of Christ as man's only hope. So I walked out of the pulpit. She came up and introduced me to her Catholic husband. And I said, Peter, based on what you just heard from God's word, what is keeping you from trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your all-sufficient Savior right now? And he just looked at me with like a deer in the headlights. I wasn't going to say another word till he responded. And finally, after about a minute, his wife blurts out, it's your parents. You don't want to offend your parents. He said, you know what? She's right. I don't want to offend my parents. So I opened up to Matthew 10. I said, look what Jesus said. He came to divide father against son and mother against daughter. Who do you love more? Jesus or your parents? And so I gave him a couple of gospel tracts. And I said, please read these tonight and come back tomorrow morning. I'll be doing the Sunday morning service. So the next morning, he and his wife were the first two people in the church. We sat down with him and he said, I couldn't sleep at all last night. I read what you gave me. I tossed and turned and finally I just cried out to the Lord to save me. And then I couldn't wait for my wife to wake up and apologize to her for biting her head off every time she invited me to church. And I told her that I trusted Jesus as my all-sufficient Savior in the middle of the night. And they sat on the side of the bed, just tears streaming down their face. The power of the gospel, God's grace, God's word, God's spirit, bringing to life a soul that had been dead in his sins. I share that with you for a couple of reasons, but primarily when we give the gospel, bring it to a close. If a person's leaning forward and asking you questions, don't let them just hang there. Ask them, what is keeping you from trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your all-sufficient Savior right now? And listen to the response. Maybe you need to share some more scriptures. Well, I just love the opportunities that the Lord gives me. You know, and if you've been witnessing for any period of time, you know that probably four out of five times you're going to be rejected. But please know they're not rejecting you. God has not opened their eyes or hearts yet to receive the gospel. But don't let that be discouraging because the more you do it, the more you're going to see God's word at work. Well, the Roman Catholic religion has convinced a lot of evangelical leaders to sign unity accords stating that we share a common faith in the gospel. The most recent one was in 2009 that states in the opening paragraph, we are Christians, Catholics, Orthodox, and Evangelicals who have joined together across historic lines of ecclesial differences to proclaim the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, you just saw the gospel that the Roman Catholic Church proclaims, and you know that we do not share a common faith in the gospel. 
Yet over 600,000 evangelicals have now signed the Manhattan Declaration, including such highly influential names as Ravi Zacharias and Al Mohler, J.I. Packer and K. Author, Mark Bailey, James Dobson, Tim Keller, Richard Land, Josh McDowell, and David Platt. You know, people that we've probably read their books, people that we esteem. But why are they doing this? Why aren't they contending for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel? Some of these people I know personally, and I've met with them one-on-one, or emailed them or called them, pleading with them to take their names off this list. I've told them they're confusing Christians by uniting with the Roman Catholic Church, by signing the Manhattan Declaration, or being disobedient to God's word. I tell them this based on 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul clearly states, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And he's referring, of course, to spiritual enterprises, which is what the gospel is all about. Not only are Catholics unbelievers, but the Roman Catholic Church has issued many anathemas condemning you and I because we will not submit to their teaching. I believe this is why a message I gave in Southern California has gone viral with over 1,300,000 views on YouTube. It's because the average evangelical is confused. Does the Catholic Church represent a mission field or a Christian denomination? The message is entitled, You Will Be Shocked. And it's really, I think, made the gospel clear to those who are confused. And I hope you would all agree that there's no more critical issue in the church today than guarding the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. It is indeed the rudder that must guide the church through stormy waters that have been stirred up by every wind of doctrine, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4.14. And at the heart of the gospel is justification, the doctrine of justification, and Paul is defending that as well. Listen to the contrast between the biblical view of justification and the Roman Catholic view. First, we see that the doctrine of justification declares the inflexible justice of God as the righteous judge who cannot let the guilty go free. In fact, the only way condemned sinners can be justified is through faith in the sin-bearing, substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ alone who satisfied divine justice. The Bible clearly teaches that justification is a change of one's legal status before God, whereby a condemned sinner has been acquitted and declared righteous. Please know that the opposite of justification is condemnation. They're both legal terms. When the gavel comes down, when a person has placed their faith in Christ, their legal status changes from condemnation to justification. But Rome denies this. Rome says justification changes the inner man, not his legal status. We see that justification is instantaneous. It happens at a moment in time. But Rome once again says, no, this is a process the ongoing renewal of the interior man. 
Catholic Church teaches that initial justification is by the sacrament of water baptism, paragraph 992 of the Catechism. But the Bible says justification is by faith in what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. The Bible describes justification as permanent. It is never, ever lost by sin. The legal status of a justified man is, un, is as unchangeable as the righteousness of Christ. And we see that in Hebrews 10:14. By one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. But Rome says no again. Justification is temporal and can be lost by sin and regained through the sacrament of penance and good works. Well, that's why on the screen you see two arrows, one going up and one going down. The Catholic Church teaches that when you do good works, your right standing before God increases. But when you sin, if you commit a mortal sin, then you lose your right standing before God and you need to be rejustified. The Bible clearly says that God justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. But Rome teaches that final justification is for those who have conformed to the righteousness of God. That's why Catholics hope they have done enough works to be good enough in the sight of God. The Bible teaches that justification is the imputation of Christ's completed righteousness to the justified Imputation also means to be credited to one's account. Second Corinthians 5.21, we read, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Is there any greater exchange that you and I can experience than Christ taking our sin and giving us his righteousness? Rome says justification is the infusion of righteousness which renews the interior man. The doctrine of infused righteousness shifts the focus from God's actions to ours, from divine grace to human merit. It points to a salvation that is not a free gift, but something to be earned over time. It presents a God whose forgiveness is dependent on our level of righteousness. <coughs> the Bible describes justification as a gift of God's grace apart from works. Christ's righteousness is given as a gift, as we see in Romans 5.17. But Rome says, no, once again, justification must include good works. Rejustification must be merited by making satisfaction for sins through penance, works of mercy, and on and on. They go so far as to say, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. Remember, the Bible only gives two anathemas. But Rome said, no, that's not enough. We're going to condemn many times over anyone who does not believe our distorted teachings of the gospel. After justification, all sins are no longer taken into account or punished. We see that in Romans 4.8. Blessed is the man whose sin God does not take into account. But Rome says all sins committed after justification 
may be punished in purgatory or in hell. God promises to glorify everyone he justifies. Those justified can never be condemned because of the great promise in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But Rome says God will condemn to hell everyone who is justified, but who dies in mortal sin. Remember, the Catholic Church teaches that water baptism is what justifies you. But yet, if a Roman Catholic dies in mortal sin, they go to hell. That denies, of course, Romans 8.30. Those God justifies, he glorifies. Well, Rome's apostasy was complete at the Council of Trent when it deliberately and dogmatically departed from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Her apostasy includes dozens of infallible anathemas that condemn anyone who does not believe Rome's corruption of the gospel. And knowing that the truth was setting people free, Rome placed the Bible on the list of forbidden books. The council also elevated its religious tradition to be equal in authority to God's word. So no longer submitting to the authority of God's word, the Catholic Church continued to distort the gospel and corrupt it. Well, there is a fatal difference between a gospel that says do and a gospel that says done. What you do for God to merit salvation nullifies justifying grace and it insults the finished, all-sufficient work of Christ. What Christ has done for you is the glorious gospel of grace and God alone is glorified for his mercy. Wouldn't When you look at it, there's only two faiths in the world today. The faith of human achievement, what man must do to appease their deity, and the faith of divine accomplishment, what Christ has done to save sinners completely and forever. Roman Catholicism and the Judaizers of the first century are no different than any other religion preaching a works righteousness salvation. So the gospel's purity and exclusivity is such that we must defend the purity of the gospel by proclaiming the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that simply means nothing can be added to the perfect, finished work of Jesus Christ. We must defend the exclusivity of the gospel by proclaiming the necessity of Jesus Christ. No one can be saved except through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who, je- who said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way for those who are lost. He's the truth for those who are deceived. And he's the very life for those who are dead in their sins. That's why there's no other name given among men by which we are to be saved. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. When you look at the glorious Christ of the gospel, we could just go on and on and on, but let me summarize it as best I can. The Son of God became the Son of Man because he had prophecy to fulfill, darkness to dispel, truth to disclose air to expose, justice to satisfy, the law to fulfill, 
sin to forgive, righteousness to impute, sinners to save, people to sanctify, redemption to purchase, a church to build, a bride to purify, freedom to grant, heaven to open, life to give, death to destroy, Satan to conquer, and God to reveal. What a glorious Savior we have in Christ Jesus. Oh, I hope all of you are just so motivated, so encouraged, better equipped to proclaim faithfully the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the gospel is not only an invitation to accept, but it's also a message to believe and a command to obey. So what must we do? Remember, there's a battle going on for the souls of men. We must enlist in the Lord's army to fight the good fight of faith. We need to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Remember, Jude wanted to write about our common salvation. But even 2,000 years ago, there were people attacking the faith. And so he had to write an epistle urging us to contend earnestly for the faith. Not passively, not whenever we feel like it. We've got to recognize the battle is going on every moment of every day. We must stand for the truth of God's word. We need to warn those who have been deceived by a distorted gospel. This isn't a pleasant thing to do, but put yourself in their place. Wouldn't you want to be warned if you were being deceived by a false gospel? Is there anything more important in this life than knowing the one and only way to heaven? Do you have compassion on those who are deceived by a false and fatal gospel? And finally, we need to proclaim the true gospel of grace to those who are perishing. We've got a lot of resources, but one in particular, I think, would really encourage all of you to know the gospel more deeply so it can just flow from your lips whenever you have an opportunity to share it. I put together what I believe are the 12 most important words of the gospel, and we put them together on index card, and it all starts with God, who created man perfectly, but man fell into sin. And now he needs the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. And it is only by grace through faith and repentance that we can receive salvation and the righteousness of God by believing the truth. And so on the back of each one of these cards, there's four bullet points defining and explaining what each word means according to Scripture. So this is an excellent tool for you to not only equip yourself to know the gospel better, but it's also a great tool that you can lose in your, in your evangelism. We've actually taken these out to the State Fair of Texas, and we have a booth, and we lay the cards out, and as people go by, we ask them, knowing that your eternal destiny hangs in the balance, which one of these words would you like to know more about? It's really amazing how open people are to engaging with you. But the most common card they pick up is the card labeled sin. They turn it over. It's almost like they're looking for a loophole. They know they're sinners. 
Then they put the card down and we say, what other card would you like to know more about? And as they read the back of the card, we say, is this what you understand the word to mean? This allows them to control the conversation and to go deeper into what the gospel is. So I encourage you to not only get a set, but also to use it in your evangelistic efforts. Don't forget our DVDs. They contain all the keynote slides that you've seen. And my wife, Jane, has done an amazing job of putting them all together. And she is indeed a blessed helpmate. In our website, proclaimingthegospel.org, we have a newsletter that goes out once a month to equip you, to encourage you to be faithful to the Great Commission, and also to alert you to the news that's coming out of the, the Vatican, keeping up with the evil deeds of Pope Francis. So I just want to thank Steve, you and the elders for the invitation to come to be a part of your church this weekend and to be enjoying the sweet fellowship that you've provided. But thank you, and we will continue to pray for you because you have a target on yourselves now. People follow our ministry, and um, they don't like the churches that we go to. And let me just say that very few churches invite me in anymore. It's only those who are standing firm on the truth of God's word. So praise God for all of you. May God bless you for your desire to see those who are perishing saved. So Father, we do thank you for your inspired words penned by the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Galatians. We pray, Father, that these words would resonate in our hearts as we proclaim and protect and cherish the glorious gospel of Christ. Father, give us boldness and courage to interact with others who want to compromise and distort the life-changing message of the cross. May we all be faithful to the King of Kings as his ambassadors. And Father, I pray if there be anyone here this morning that is still outside of Christ, that still does not know where they will spend eternity, Father, I pray that they would repent and believe the glorious gospel of grace that they've seen clearly presented this morning. We ask this in the power of our Lord's name and for his glory. Amen.